RA Exchange. Welcome to Resident Advisors Exchange. I'm Chloe Lula, the Exchange's senior producer. Today on The Exchange, I'm happy to present the London-based label, agency, and event series, Eastern Margins. RA's senior staff writer, Naishka Chadron, speaks with co-founder David Joe, who also performs under the name Lumi, about the origins of the platform, which aims to popularize experimental electronic music from the outskirts of East and Southeast Asia and to foster a much-needed community for East and Southeast Asian ravers. There are a few different ways that Eastern Margins uses music to explore identity. It's created a dedicated space in London to promote a dialogue between the local scene and the diaspora. And it also releases Gabber, Happy Hardcore, and a few different strains of techno that pull from the sonics of East Asian music. Much like Amapiano and Quam, two house-adjacent genres that originated in Africa, the music that inspires releases on Eastern Margins was first disseminated via WhatsApp messages and YouTube rips. The result is a canon of music that's crackly and lo-fi, mining music that's rarely heard in the West. From Indonesian Funkat to Vietnamese Vina House, Filipino Budots, and Malaysian Manyao. Please excuse my pronunciation. A lot of these musical subgenres, I think if you really trace the history back, it starts off in kind of the 80s and the 90s in places like Hong Kong and in places like Tokyo, where European electronic music culture was getting exported to those places. Over time, these sounds and these scenes have really taken those formative influences and evolved into a sound of their own. David and Naishka take a dive into some of the songs that epitomize the label and how Eastern Margins has expanded its vision from its first forays as a label more than five years ago. Dialogue and collaboration is at the core of their identity. And they close the interview with thoughts on how to represent the diversity of their community by working with other artists, clubs, and collectives from all over the globe. Thanks so much for tuning in. Without further ado, here is Eastern Margins. Hello, everyone. This is Neshka coming to you from RA's London office. I've been thinking a lot about localized dance music. Once regional sounds like Amapiano and K-pop have now infiltrated global dance floors, they've been introducing listeners to the cultural history and the context behind these styles. You know, in Asia Pacific, a lot of producers and DJs have now been experimenting with popular music incorporating everything from pop to local folk to EDM and rap into what we call the contemporary rave repertoire. In Vietnam, for example, there's a style known as Vina House. Singapore has Maniao. Indonesia has Dangdut, Phangnat, and many other styles. Over in the Philippines, Manila Community Radio collaborated with Boiler Room earlier this year to introduce a showcase of budot, which is a grassroots genre that originated in the southern Philippines. In London, the label and events collective Eastern Margins has been working hard to champion the many forms of maximalist dance music around Southeast and North Asia. With me today to talk about these hybrid sounds is the artist known as Lumi, who is one of the co-founders of Eastern Margins. Can you uh, tell us about yourself? 
Yeah, of course. I'm David Joe, performer named Lumi. I started Eastern Margins with my co-founder Anthony about five and a half years ago. Basically, what we're trying to do is globalize what we call alternative Asian culture. So that's typically experimental electronic music from the margins of East and Southeast Asia and its diaspora. We started out doing parties and raves in London about five, six years ago. Since then, it's evolved. We're now a label. We run events. We run tours. We also have an agency, all with kind of the goal of basically bringing context and globalizing these sounds that we're really obsessed with. And something that we've been really obsessed with that you touched on earlier is these kind of electronic subgenres, these mutations prevalent through East and Southeast Asia. Funk art in Indonesia, Budots in Philippines, you mentioned Manyao, other genres like Vina Hey, Vina House. We kind of call them all under this umbrella name of like Redline. And I think that name for us captures that rawness, that maximalism, and that high energy. So yeah, I'm really excited to jump into it with you. I think we should just start with the music itself. You know, yeah. a lot of these genres will sound unfamiliar to a lot of our listeners. I mean, I know many of these can be considered high BPM, fast tempo yeah. interpretations of happy hardcore, of techno, yeah. of gabber. Yeah, why don't you tell us a little bit about these genres and what they sound like? Let's do it. So I'm going to start with the most complicated and actually the historical origin of kind of how we all started. So we're going to start in Indonesia. So one of the crew members of Eastern Margins, AR Aria, is Indonesian. And about three, three and a half years ago, he started introducing me to this sound called Funkot. And Funkot is this very fast, breakbeat-heavy genre that originated in the Kota district of Jakarta. That's why it's called Funkot. It's short for Funky Kota. And it's this like really, really distinctive breakbeat-driven genre that takes a lot of influence from other Indonesian electronic subgenres like Dundut and Koplo, but also draws a lot from kind of like Dutch house and the more EDM side of things. When you first hear it, it sounds both really nostalgic and really futuristic at the same time. I grew up on like UK dance music, like hardcore continuum stuff. I was like, this sounds like jungle if it was fed through a corrupted USB. And it's amazing. And like Ari introduced this to me and we basically got obsessed with it. And we started digging. And at the time, Eastern Margins, we had been kind of trying to refine the sound that we were really interested in. And this was kind of like a formative experience for us, like a DNA type of moment. Because basically, Funkot is what we think of as like one strand of a super rich tapestry of electronic subgenres throughout Asia. So the ones that I'll kind of just reel them off, you know, Funkot, Dunduk, Koplo in Indonesia, and a whole bunch of others that I'm not naming in Indonesia, Manyao from like the Chinese diaspora in Singapore and Malaysia, Bidots in the Philippines, Vina House or Vina Hay in Vietnam. Then there's like older kind of genres like hyper techno in Japan as well. All of these genres, in our view, are really, really native to the communal spaces of East and Southeast Asia. And we're going to talk about that distinction a little bit as well. And all of these sounds are characterized by what I would say is like high energy, raw, maximalist, and DIY. 
And for us, that was like just super, super captivating. So yeah, it started with Funcop. And since then, that's taken us throughout kind of the black hole of all of these like amazing sounds from East and Southeast Asia. You know, one of the big trends that we talk about in dance music is how popular faster tempos are. Yeah. And, you know, how everywhere you go, techno and gabber is getting harder yeah. and faster and stronger. Yeah. So when we talk about a genre like hyperpop, which is particularly popular amongst what we call Gen Z, you yeah. know, um, younger ravers, would you say this music is primarily for a younger audience? Has it been around for a long time or is it really like a newer phenomenon? I think a lot of this music has been evolving and has existed in some form for a good amount of time, like sometimes up to two decades, depending on the type of genre. So I think the sounds themselves aren't necessarily that young, but I would say it's come to this kind of like intersection where the rest of the more global music landscape, especially in the electronic world, has started almost to catch up with some of these sounds. And some of these sounds are much, much closer, like you said, to these prevalent sounds of kind of hard techno, hard club, and like hyperpop. So it's this real kind of uh, Mobius strip moment. Because if you, I often think about, and I often talk about it with the guys at PC Music, it's like hyperpop is really, really, really draws a lot of influence from like early J-pop. And early J-pop in turn is drawn from kind of these like, late 90s, early 2000s kind of electronic music trends like para para or like hyper techno, the evolution of like Euro dance and like Euro beat and its kind of evolution in Japan. So you have this full circle moment where like hyper pop has become this like globally recognized sound drawing from J-pop, which in turn draws from like the 90s influence of like Western music in Japan. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I've always found that fascinating. And for me, it's just like this manifestation of this idea that all music is like referential in some way. So yeah. Definitely. I mean, and I think so much of the time when we talk about culturally specific music or music that's specific to a region, when we look at labels like Principe Discos, you know, um, in Portugal, they draw from such a rich history of Afrocentric music. Yeah. And that music is so diasporic. Yeah. So... When you look at genres like Vina House, Maniao, Dangdut, would you say that they are rooted in like a Western dance music tradition or do they really cross-reference each other? I mean, can you say that this music, you know, came about on its own in Southeast Asia and North Asia or was it really borrowing from different sonic traditions around the world? I think both. But I definitely think at the beginning, it would be misrepresenting to say it wasn't heavily influenced by Western electronic music. A lot of these musical subgenres, I think if you really trace the history back, it starts off in kind of the 80s and the 90s in places like Hong Kong and in places like Tokyo, where European electronic music culture was getting exported to those places, mainly by a lot of Europeans and also, you know, American dance music culture from Americans as well. But I think over time, these sounds and these scenes have really taken those formative influences and evolved into a sound of their own, with their own fashion, with their own style, with their own samples, with their own kind of history. What's really interesting is that 
although they've evolved and it's been decades since the inception of some of the sounds, there's still somewhat of a stigma surrounding these sounds that they're seen as like Western-centric or they're seen as kind of like a derivative. And I think that's really unfair to the originality and innovation of some of these genres. And that can be quite a binary perspective as yeah, well. Yeah, for sure. All music is referential in some way. Like, unless you're making your own sheepskin, like, you're always going to be working with something that exists already. So You touched on a really interesting point earlier when you were describing these sounds, that they're really made for communal spaces. Yeah. I'm sure a lot of younger producers are making tunes for the club and for the dance floor, but... Yeah. Originally, a lot of these, a lot of this music was meant to be consumed in public spaces. Talk to us a little about what these spaces are and how the location influences the actual sonics, the musical elements. Yeah, I always say, like, if you really want to experience, say, like, Vina House in Vietnam, or you really want to experience Budot in, like, Davao, don't go to a club, get a taxi, get a jeepney. Like, those are the places, those are the best A&Rs, those are the best distributors of this kind of music, because the music occupying those spaces is really, really specific to that part of the world. For example, like, when I first heard Vina House, that was in a taxi in Saigon, just riding from the airport. That was the first thing I heard. And I think the reality is, is, like, a club environment is not necessarily a space or an environment that has always been native to some of these countries in East and Southeast Asia. The idea of going to a dark room or a dark outdoor space to dance to electronic music is not necessarily something that has like native roots in East and Southeast Asia for like quite practical reasons. Like some of these places are super hot, you know? Like, do you really want to go dance in like a closed room when it's like 35 degrees, 70% humidity? Doesn't really make sense. So a lot of this music is filtered through outdoor spaces. So, you know, like squares in East Asia, like in China, there's like the phenomena of like Guangchangwu, which is basically kind of the older generation getting together at the end of the day when it's like dusk to dance to music together communally, like in a space. And then, you know, taking another example, like Budots, there's a lot of that that happens basically in the driveways of like Davao City, where it's originated in the streets of Davao City, because space is at a premium in a lot of these places. So yeah, I think that's a really, really unique distinction to the environment of how a lot of this music is consumed and what environment it's made for. So, yeah. I mean, it kind of goes back to conversations you and me have had separately about how club culture is perceived, yeah. you know, in, in many developing parts of the world. And yeah. for example, in South Asia, there aren't that many clubs, really. Outside of a country like India, you look at regions like Pakistan and Bangladesh, Nightlife doesn't exist in the way that we know it in, as, as in the US and UK. So yeah. it's like, how does this music get spread? And how is it shared? And how is it enjoyed? And as you said, a lot of it happens in public spaces, in parking lots, in, yeah, in the yeah, internet yeah. cafe. Yeah, exactly. How that music is distributed through cultures and through communities is also a feedback loop to what kind of music is made. 
because when you're distributing music primarily through YouTube and people are primarily listening to it on their phones, that's going to influence how you mix and master your music, right? Mm -hmm. You're not going to be putting loads of sub bass in that music, loads of low frequencies, because people aren't going to hear it. But some of these producers of these subgenres are absolute masters of conveying the excitement of dance music at like mid frequencies through mm -hmm. phones, through laptop speakers. And I think what's a really interesting conversation is that. In the global music electronic discourse, there's often a stigma around YouTube rips, mm. low quality MP3s. It's seen as somehow less worthy. But in my view, like if music is made for that medium and it sounds perfect for that medium, that deserves to be celebrated on its own terms. And I think that stigma really doesn't take into account what daily life is like in East and Southeast Asia for a lot of people. Definitely. I mean, there are so many comparisons to be made in different parts of the world as well. You know, when Amapiano or when Gom yeah. on the African continent was getting really popular, a lot of those, those tunes were spread over WhatsApp. Yeah, 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 exactly. And again, that's how people are hearing this music and how they're enjoying it. So just getting back to the actual sonics, you know, we talked about how a lot of these genres are kind of rooted in happy hardcore and gabber and techno. Would you say that they're lean more towards bassy elements? Would you say that you know it's more if uh, they have more kick drums? Like, what are some of the common reference points you hear yeah. in a lot of these sounds? I think a couple of common sonic signifiers that exist through them, all these subgenres. One really, really squelchy, sometimes almost like mosquito-like synths, very shrill, very high-pitched, kind of almost like fidget house taken to its like absolute like logical extreme. I think that's like born out of necessity, right? When the environment in which that music is being consumed is super loud and noisy, you want it to cut through. So I think that's one common sonic signifier that kind of like high shrill synths mm. that you'll hear across like Vena House, Funkop, Dots, everything. And then I think the other thing is simplicity. A lot of these genres are deceptively simple. There might not be that many elements playing at any one time. They might be quite repetitive in terms of format. You know, in Funkart, every song kind of has this like same like triplet breakbeat pattern. In Vena House, you kind of hear this like warpy bass, this kind of like very, very like mid-range like kick drum piercing through. And I think that simplicity can be mistaken for sometimes like unsophistication when really like the way I think about it is like they've actually just figured it out. Like this is like the optimal music for this environment. There's no need to deviate from it. So for me, like those two sonic signifiers, like actually when I hear them, like I have a huge amount of like respect for like all of the artists who do that. I always have like this scene in my mind. It's a DJ producer called DJ Love who is one of the pioneers and originators of Budots from Davao City. And it was in this documentary, and there's a clip of him just sat in pretty much a shed with a version of Fruity Loops. I don't even know like how early version of Fruity Loops. <laughs> just like cigarettes, lighters strewn over the table. And you know, he's playing it from the speakers and even through like the film camera, you can feel like the physical impact just because of simplicity. 
So I think these artists are really, really pioneers of how to make their sound perfect for the environment that it's designed for. It's a lot of resiliency and flexibility. Yeah, for sure. Talk to me about the samples. Is this sample heavy music? Is it, like you said, there seem to be a lot of repetitive loops? Yeah. Is there any influence from folk traditions? Would you call this very modern music? Is it very much focused on the present as opposed to referencing the past? Yeah, it definitely depends on which electronic mutation we're talking about, but the referential part is more so in referencing like popular music. Mm -hmm. So like it's basically bootleg culture. In the same way that as soon as like a big rap song or R&B song starts doing the rounds in the US, there's going to be a Jersey Club remix. In exactly the same way, in Saigon, if you're riding around on your grab taxi, like you're going to hear today's Vena Pop mm -hmm. song remixed as like a Vena House track. And that referential element makes some of this music really, really modern because it's based on like what are most people Listening to right, right now. now, exactly. How are we gonna basically like fuck that up right now? So, I think that's a really like modern part of it. And then the other side of it is like because a lot of these genres kind of have like a template to them, they also have these samples that have like their own history and are very, very, very kind of like iconic samples. Mm -hmm. I've often played kind of like this like who sampled game where like sometimes you hear like this one sample and you'll hear it in like a Taiwanese club track, and then you'll hear it in like a funk hot track. And then you're kind of like, A, like where does this sample come from? And like B, like how has it traveled? I'm not a producer, like I'm definitely not in the inner circles of how this stuff gets distributed, but there's definitely a kind of shared tapestry of these samples across the region. Talk to us about, you know, how you got so committed to championing this music. I mean, you spoke a little bit at the beginning about how your fellow co-founder introduced you yeah. to Funk Nods. But yeah, what was your, was that your first exposure to these regional club sounds? And why are you so dedicated to kind yeah, of promo yeah, yeah. promoting them on the global stage? I think fundamentally for me and for Eastern Margins, we are fans first and foremost we are not experts by any means. We still want to have that like naivety of just being like really excited about stuff. Like the immediate feeling when we discover something is like, I want to send this to someone on WhatsApp or like I want to DM someone about it. So what we're doing is really just like, I think a more systematic manifestation of that energy. Like we get excited about this music we feel a real like sense of cultural connection to music. We want to tell our friends about it. Now it's evolved into, okay, we've told all our friends. Now we want to tell the world about it, basically. It's kind of the energy which is, runs through everything that we do. So David, you've told us about how you first got into this music and how you started learning more about it and why you're so committed to championing it on a global stage. Maybe you can tell us a little bit now about how Eastern Margins formed as a platform and what you guys are trying to do with this platform. Yeah, definitely. The original intention of Eastern Margins and our original motivation was to bring two aspects of our lives, myself and my co-founder Anthony's lives, more in convergence. And those two things were our roots in electronic music, growing up, go into a lot of UK dance music raves 
and at the same time, our Asian culture and heritage. Because for the longest time, those two parts of our lives, which were massive, were very, very compartmentalized. They never crossed over. And it took some time, and it's definitely a coming of age thing in realizing why are those things compartmentalized and why are they so distinct? And Eastern Margins was very born out of a motivation to bring those things together and converge them and see if we could find that commonality between our love for the communion, the community aspects of dance music that we love and our own heritage and our own culture. I'll be the first to say it with Eastern Margins, it's a journey. One of the things we're very, very, very conscious of, and I always really, really support is like, it's messy and it's chaotic and it's fine. Like, let all of that out and let everyone see that process and for people to come on that process with us. And by that, what I mean is like, we never had it like figured out. We're learning about a lot of what we do at Eastern Margins as the same time as our community as the same time as our fans. And it's perfectly fine for something not to be fully formed. I remember when we were starting out, there was a really, really memorable quote from Susan that actually I think was in a resident advisor feature that really stuck with me, where Susan was basically saying like, look, there's partly like a question of like culturally appropriate in like my own culture. I remember him saying something like, you know, most of my exposure to Asian cultures, like from watching like bad Hong Kong films or like triad flicks from the 90s, like I didn't grow up in that world. So there's a question of like, am I qualified to kind of speak about it? And that always like really, really resonated for me because it's exactly the same experience for me. I was born in China. I spent a good amount of time there, but I grew up and I came of age in the UK. And for me, and for my other co-founders at Eastern Margins sharing a similar story to be telling the story of alternative Asian culture, there is an aspect of, are we the right people to tell it? Are we qualified to tell it? Our answer to that is effectively, as long as you do it with transparency and honesty and passion, it's fine to make mistakes. It's fine to like mispronounce track names. It's fine if your Cantonese or your Mandarin or your Tagalog is bad. It's fine. As long as it comes from a place of genuinely being excited about the culture that you're trying to learn, as long as it's coming from a place where you're educating yourself about it, I think making those mistakes and not knowing is totally cool. And it's inclusive and it brings people in. If they see that, it's fine to do that. So I think that's always something that's been really, really front of our mind at Eastern Margins and what we try and do is we want to make this inclusive. We don't want to say like, this is not for you. This is for us to represent. Like, I couldn't really care like what ethnicity you are, where you're based, as long as there's genuine passion and genuine drive to understand more. So yeah, I always say like, there's many foreigners who have been massively influential to how East and Southeast Asian dance music cultures developed as there are 
diasporic East and Southeast Asians who don't know their own mother language and can't really engage with their own culture. So I think, yeah, Eastern margins, a big driving part of what we're doing is inclusivity. We want to bring people in. We want to tell the story of what we're doing, and we want to tell it to a bigger audience. Being based in London, I'm curious how you and the crew can authentically represent these sounds that originate on the other side of the world. I mean, I know you make it a point to visit quite often. Yeah. You've been touring quite a lot yeah. around North Asia and Southeast Asia. Yeah, how do you make sure you're in touch? For sure. I think the term that always comes to mind when we think about our position is we still have an outsider's naivety. So what I mean by that is like, by virtue of the fact that a lot of us are based in London and a few of us in Australia, we are still not living and breathing some of these sounds and some of these scenes like day to day. We're not based in these places. We're very conscious that we don't want to hold ourselves out as being experts or we don't want to hold them ourselves out as being ambassadors. And I think through everything that we do with the label and with events, we're always trying to champion artists who are actually based in East and Southeast Asia. And that's a massive part of our emphasis. So a lot of our label artists, for example, Dirty K based in China, Shell Hill based in Malaysia, Abyss Dogma 777 in Manila. These artists know way more about everything what we're discussing than I do. And in a lot of ways, what I'm discussing today is just knowledge passed down from them. But even the fact of me going on this podcast, speaking about these genres, there is a question of my own privilege being someone who's been based in London, who speaks English fluently, being able to basically talk about these genres. And for me, the main thought on that is, is a compromise. Ideally, it would be fantastic if every conversation we could have DJ Love speaking about Bredots, we could have the pioneers of Vina House, we could have DJ Huanan speaking about Vina House. But we have to start somewhere. And I think with Eastern Margins, that starting somewhere for us is born from the idea like, let's just do it. Let's just get these sounds out there. Let's start percolating them through. And then once we've established some of the context, then we can all go deeper. Speaking of getting these sounds out there, I'm really curious to understand what the initial crowd reaction was when you first started doing parties in London. And, you know, people in London are presumably hearing this music for the very first time. They've probably never heard of Maniao or Vina House, but they are very familiar with Hyperpop and Gabber. Yeah. and just like classic 90s old school rave. Yeah. So I imagine that they would feel connected with this kind of like ultra hyperkinetic, super fast dance music. Yeah. I think what's been great about the whole process is that it's been a journey that we've shared with our audience and we've shared with our community. And they are as much involved in helping us learn about these genres as it is a case of us bringing these new sounds to them. I think when we started, we definitely were not so knowledgeable about a lot of these sounds. And going on that journey together with our audience has meant it's been a pretty gradual process. And it's been really informed by what's going on the dance floor and what people are receptive to. And I think a big part of what's exciting is 
seeing in the very recent years that these sounds that we started to be pushing have started to converge with some wider trends in like London club music landscape. The harder stuff that you said, other crews like Planet Fun, Fetchish, Genesis, Hypoxia, these parties in London pushing that much, much harder, Gabbery, and almost kind of like happy hardcore donk sounds converging with some of these faster BPMs that we're drawing from Asia. So that convergence has been really exciting for us to see. You know, when we talk about perceptions of this music, you just talked about how successfully you've grown the Eastern Margins crowd here in London and yeah. how you work with so many other creatives who are focused on Southeast Asian film, food, music, and how there's so much opportunities for collaboration here in London. But, you know, as someone who's lived in Singapore for many years, I always noticed that these forms of popular music, whether it's Maniao, whether it's Vina House, they're not always appreciated on that side of the world. You know, a lot of venue owners will tell DJs straight up to not play those sounds because they want to be perceived as modern. They want to be perceived as Western. Yeah. And to them, that music is not equated with success. Even though the people want to hear that music, it's beloved by, you know, masses of the population. So talk to us about when Eastern Margins tour Singapore, Japan, China, Korea. How are the crowds different from the shows you do here in London? And do you kind of experience this, what I would call kind of a post-colonial mentality to music? For sure. I think one thing we're really conscious of when we take the Eastern Margin sound on the road in Asia is that one song we play in Asia is going to have a very, very different context if we play it in London. I'll give you an example, right? Like an old, like, Hong Kong song called Ni Lao Dao Sou Kei, and it's by this band called MP4. And it's kind of like this track that was kind of a protest on the amount of ketamine on the dance floor in the Hong Kong club scene in the 90s and early 2000s, which is very, very funny given everything that's going on in the world right now. But you know, if we play that track in London, it's going to be the first time that a lot of people hear that track. They're not going to have that context, and it's going to feel incredibly, incredibly like fresh. If we play that same track in Hong Kong, it's kind of a track that people have grown up with. It's kind of a track that people hear just like in their daily lives. So we have to be very, very careful, and we're very, very like conscious of that difference in context when we're deciding what music to play and what music to champion. So I have like a good friend of mine, Tedman Lee, who's part of the Hong Kong scene. He does lots of great stuff. He manages artists called Young Queens. And I always send him all of this stuff that I get really excited about. He always says to me like, dude, you literally just play like what I hear out of my bedroom window every day. So popular music. Exactly. That difference in context. I think it's our responsibility to be very, very sensitive to, to it. So we will definitely adapt our sounds depending on the country, depending on the city that we're in. Because what we want to do is we want to bring fresh sounds and we want to globalize these different sounds. So we always try and bring something that people might not be as familiar with. And that will vary very, very differently depending on if we're in London, Shanghai or Seoul. And it's important to note, I think, that when Eastern Margins does shows on that side of the world, you're booking local talent. 
Exactly. So you're booking people who kind of know the lay of the land and they know what's sensitive and what's appropriate to play out. Yeah. What's great is like working with so many of these local artists is because we have this outsider's naivety, right? We can sometimes suggest songs or suggest tracks or get excited about things that might not be front of their mind because it's such a everyday part of their life and us giving that context, us giving it a different angle kind of reignites the discussion about it. So I think it's, it goes back to what you said about collaboration. It's the idea that as long as we keep the channels of communication open and as long as we're honest about communicating with each other about how we feel about some of these sounds, I think we can work through like really, really thorny issues and really, really exciting issues as well. Do you feel like when you're touring on that side of the world, are you experiencing like this excitement of like younger crowds hearing this like really popular music stuff they hear every day? And because, you know, that's not what they would hear at a fancy club on that side of the world. It's like a lot of the venues that, you know, you and me go to in London, the equivalent of those venues on that side of the world, they're not playing the popular music. Yeah. So it's still quite, it's quite a rarity still, I would say. So when you're dealing when you're dealing with your audience in those cities is there a sense of excitement is there a sense of surprise are they still getting adjusted to what you guys are trying to do or do you think the foundation is there for more growth i think it's for sure changing the perceptions and attitudes in venues and club spaces through east and southeast asia like recently we were touring southeast asia on our road to redline tour and we were playing in some clubs that a few of the Eastern Margins crew members like Aria and Kalisha had visited like throughout the years in Jakarta. And they were telling us like growing up, hearing Funkot or that kind of sound in these kind of clubs was like unheard of. And it was seen as like, there was definitely like a stigma attached to it. But because of the convergence of these subgenres with like global music discourse, and because certain artists, like you mentioned earlier, have got global success and recognition outside of their home country for these sounds, that has kind of given like these sounds a credibility within their own cities, within their own scenes, for things to be revisited. And I think that has meant a lot of these clubs, a lot of these venues, a lot of the scene in East and Southeast Asia started opening up again and being more proud and more inquisitive of the music and sounds that already existed in that part of the world. Totally. I mean, you see that happening with a duo like Gabor Modus Operandi. You know, yeah. what they've done for Indonesian popular music has just been mind-blowing. And they've inspired so many younger artists to kind of embrace, embrace these like really local sounds and not be ashamed of them, for them to really except that they also have a place in, you know, the global global rave scene. Yeah. If I, you look at Thailand, you know, so a band like the Paradise Bangkok yeah, Mulan yeah, band, yeah. what they've done for Mulan music, which is like northern Thai folk music, has also just been completely game-changing. You know? Yeah. And I think there's one more layer of complexity and nuance that we should touch on for that. And I think that goes to the economic and the class distribution of how some of this music is popularized. Like, I remember during the Minolita Community Radio, Budot's broadcast for Boiler Room, 
There was a really interesting discourse and I learned a lot, especially from what Taya Logos, they're an amazing, amazing DJ. There was a discussion around what does it mean for Budot, which is traditionally a working class music from Davao, like based in a different part of Philippines, to get global recognition in Manila, in a different city, in a different part of the Philippines, speaking a completely different dialect, for that to be the channel of visibility for it. And I think what Taya said in this situation was really inspiring. They were saying effectively, look, it comes from a place of passion and excitement. And that Manila community radio had DJ Love, one of the pioneers performing. And to see the outburst of emotion from DJ Love performing, there's always ways that things can be done better. And there's always ways that things could be done with more nuance. And there's always ways in which power in the music industry can be distributed more fairly on economic and in financial terms. But we still need to make little steps of progress. And I think that's really something to keep in mind when we think about how this music gets promulgated or how it gets distributed across the world. I mean, sure, yeah. A big critique is, you know, again, when we talk about club culture in a lot of developing economies, who can afford to go to the club? Exactly, so, right. It's a very yeah, specific yeah. upper middle class, what you would call the rich kid, you yeah. know? These are kids that, you know, have the funds and they have the accessibility to be exposed to parties like this Boiler Room Showcase. But then this music has such working class origins and like what happens to those people, you know? They're not at that party listening and kind of enjoying hearing their music yeah. played on a great sound system. So it's definitely like the issue of accessibility is always a big one, you know? And it will be interesting to experiment with like ticket prices, you know? Like who gets to go to the party yeah. You know, and how can you throw these parties in locations that are comfortable for different segments of the population? And it's just super practical, boring things like who can get a visa to go travel? Mm -hmm. We've been working really hard with Orhe Obese Dogma 777 on bringing potentially him and DJ Love to Europe earlier in the year. And it's just like complications like, how do you get a visa if you're Filipino and you don't have the right work in history? You don't have the right type of employment. And that really puts a very, very practical challenge on some of these artists touring, on some of these artists globalizing. So, yeah, I think as you say, like, as long as like we stay sensitive to it, it's something hopefully we can make progress on. I mean, just looking ahead to what you know, the next five years look like for Eastern Margins, where, how do you see your parties evolving and how do you see the releases on your label changing? I mean, you have a, two great compilations um, that really showcase like the depth and breadth of all these regional sounds, but how do you see the, the label and the parties growing? Yeah, I think with Eastern Margins, there's been three stages to our journey. The first stage of Eastern Margins was more born out of a desire for representation, to see our culture and our sights and sounds represented in the electronic music world. And we're in the second stage of what I think, we think of it as storytelling. Now it's about bringing stories that we're excited about from these electronic mutations in East and Southeast Asia telling those stories to a global audience 
I think that's the stage we're at now, telling those stories. And I think the third stage, which we're driving towards in like typical red line fashion at like 200 miles per hour, <laughs> is finding our own sound and refining and innovating a new direction. I think to get there, we have to do a lot more audio soul searching. We have to do a lot more conversation with our community. But what I would love for Eastern Margins to get to as a label, as an event, as a community, is a point where it's like, that's our sound, that's our look, that's our vibe. And for that to be something that is actually not dependent on necessary geographical context or cultural context anymore. So that's the stages. Representation, storytelling, and finding our own thing. It seems like the last stage, the, the more experimental, you know, experimenting with these established genres, I feel like that can really be the key to take these sounds and kind of bring them to a, a more global audience, right? When you look at a genre like K-pop or yeah. like Ama Piano, like the growth these sounds have experienced in like a couple of years is just, it's really mind-blowing. So what do you think is needed for genres like Vina House or Mania to really be heard on dance floors across the world? Yeah, I think in that question, there's like the implicit assumption that these genres need to be more told on a global stage. And definitely that's something which would be great and that's something we champion at Eastern Margins. But what I find super exciting about a lot of these scenes and a lot of these sounds is that they have the infrastructure and they have the audience and community to exist on their own terms in their own environment. They're entirely self-sufficient. You know, the Wiener House DJs that we talk about, like we can't even get a hold of them a lot of the time, you know, they're super busy. They haven't got time to be like answering a DM from us. They got gigs up and down the country. So the likes of like DJ Tilo, massive in like Wiener House scene, like for him, like going global is a choice mm. rather than a necessity. And I think that is so, 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 so crucial because I think it allows these scenes and these artists to kind of grow on their own terms. They're not forced to become global if they don't feel like that's necessary. They're not forced by economic considerations to do that. I think that will mean that maybe it takes a bit more time for these scenes to become globally recognized, but I think they will be able to do it from a position of more power and from more control rather than having to kind of go outside of their home markets or their home territories out of necessity. That sounds like a really healthy ecosystem. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So look, I think for us, it'd be great if they answered our DMs more, but at the same time, it's fantastic that they can just do their own thing. So. And that's how club culture should be. You know, it should be localized and it shouldn't have to rely on Western or global forms of distribution. Exactly. Like, I like to think that hopefully some of these DJs will listen to this conversation at some point and kind of like hear about it. But also at the same time, I'd absolutely love it if they just had no idea and they just did their thing and they killed it and they're continuing to kill it, continuing to grow their audience. All of that is really encouraging for me. Thank you so much for coming in to chat today. This has been great. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me.
Thanks for listening to this RA Exchange with Eastern Margins. Many thanks to Naishka for moderating this talk. The track playing in the outro of this episode is Tokyo Renaissance by Dirty K, which came out on the label in February 2022. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe to the RA Exchange and listen to our full archive of conversations on ra.co or on SoundCloud at ra-exchange. Until next time, take care. 